Welcome to N20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. From 2040 to 2195. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, permaculture, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. This episode follows Tessa the Hacker, a recurring character. Listen to Podcast 6, in 2042 The Sea Hacker if you want to follow her story from the beginning. Tessa, wearing an oversized jacket, brings her tray to a table in the mess hall, early in the morning when few others have come down yet. Here in what was a fancy hotel converted to barracks, she prefers getting up before the morning alarm goes off. The single room where she sleeps is partitioned into three bunk spaces. She shares the bathroom with two others and good luck taking a shower in the morning, unless you get up early. She sighs laboriously and groans under her breath day and night. Never before has she felt so burdened. Her current situation makes everything harder to do, and taxes her energy. When she tries to sleep at night, she feels suffocated. It's hard to breathe. She sets her foldable in front of her tray and watches turn videos while chewing a freezer-burned breakfast sandwich. Pele, a dark-complected gym fanatic, spots her and heads her way. He sits across from her and shows her the pads of his fingers. Tess, look. Tiny dots of bruising mark each finger. She pulls an earbud out and looks up. You got them. He examines his finger. Did you? Tessa nods. As soon as I heard you could get them. Tessa first read about VR dots two years ago, but they weren't supposed to come out until 2050. They're tiny chips embedded in skin and clothes that swarm pair and give VR software information about the position and actions of the wearer. Each dot triangulates its position with other dots. Ambient radio waves power them, so they don't need batteries. When you wear enough VR dots the movements of your avatars and control appendages are accurate to the micrometer. The tech is safe enough for surgeons to use to perform remote surgery. The only other way to get such accuracy of movement is to wear cumbersome gear that looks like a robotic exoskeleton and quickly becomes uncomfortable. Yes, it's weird that a company offers the VR dots for free to everyone at a time when store shelves are empty. Even if the robotics company wants to branch out into the VR market, could they have at least waited for a time when fewer people were dying in their homes? In a time when people can't get drinkable water, they can step into one of the vans where a robot will inject dots under their skin at key points, elbows, knees, tips of toes, chins, and even lips and eyelids. Everyone has been getting them. Not only can people get clothes with the dots woven into the fabric, but now it's hard to get clothes that don't have them. One of Tessa's hacker friends insists that there were payouts to clothing companies to make sure all new clothes have the dots. With his growly voice, Pele says, hold your foldable up. Use AR. Tessa lifts her foldable in front of where he holds his hand out. She taps on the camera app. His fingers move on the screen and a large ball of water moves from finger to finger. He says, amazing, huh? Tessa says, yeah. She sets her foldable back down. Pele touches his lip. I can feel them, especially the ones in my face.
Tessa nods. Don't push on them too much. You'll forget they're there in a few weeks. Each dot is the size of a grain of sand. Pele says, hey, you got the extra large meal. Tessa says, you can choose the size. Pele says, but you're small. She smiles unenthusiastically and maintains eye contact with him while stuffing a wrapped sandwich and two oatmeal bars into her jacket pockets. Pele smirks, oh I know, you're going to feed some to civvies. Tessa's eyes glint. Exactly. She sticks a straw in an OJ and sips at it. More people enter the mess hall. Though they come from military and corps programs, they all wear emergency relief uniforms, blue jackets clearly labeled, citizen aid. Pele stands. Hey, check your bank account. Tessa's eyes narrow. Why would I check my bank account? He walks away. Just do it. She moves her foldable to her lap and logs into her bank. An unfamiliar sight takes the screen. Bank of the United States. She closes the browser. After waiting a few seconds, she opens a new browser and types in her bank name. Clicking the link brings her back to the imposter page. This time a pop-up appears, your account has been transferred. She logs out and logs back in. Try as she might, she can't get to her bank. She says, goggle, call my bank, then folds up her foldable and holds it to her ear. Page Bank is no longer in service. Your accounts have been handed over to the Bank of the United States. Tessa stands, dumps her tray in the bin, and hurries down the hall. She calls after Pele, what happened to my bank? Pele turns and walks backward before she catches up to him. You still have all your money. It's been transferred to Fed Wallet. It's supposed to be much more secure. That can't be legal. What happened to my bank? It most likely closed. The banks were going to switch to the national cryptocurrency, but then the media attack happened and too many bank employees couldn't work. The banks were struggling to open for business. Just sign on, prove to them it's you and choose a new password. Prove to them it's me. It's my money. Just be glad we live in a time when you can still access your money. Seriously, this could have gone a whole lot worse. Don't you watch the news? It depresses me. So do I move my money back when the banks reopen? I don't think they'll ever reopen. Does it matter? I'm surprised you don't follow the news. You give off a political vibe. With a worried look, Tessa stops and lets him walk away. I don't. Is her public persona wearing thin? An hour later, Tessa weaves her way between people in what was the lobby of the Marriott and is now the meeting hall. About 200 personnel sit in folding chairs, on tables, or lean against pillars and walls. Tessa heads to a concentration of females and takes a chair. Familiar faces nearby turn and give her smiles. Major Clark stands in front, looking over the troops. Shoulder to shoulder, he's wide, but front to back, he's narrow. Chitter-chatter clouds the air. Clark waits. At seven, buzzers throughout the building sound off. Everyone stops talking and watches Major Clark. He faces the crowd with an expression like a sad bulldog. I spoke with the chief of police last night. 
she wants us to report any signs of stealing, vandalizing, and opportunism. The gangs think they rule the city. Illegal drug sales have tripled from last year. Tripled. Your objective is to clear out bodies, but your teams are often the only form of aid a lot of people have seen in weeks. You'll encounter emergencies. Always point the living to the nearest Pexin station. It's their responsibility to find their way there. Major Clark's eyes fall on Tessa, and she stops herself from cowering. He says, keep up the pace troops. Boston is ahead of most other cities. Let's show them what we can do with what we got. During the bus ride, Tessa rests her eyes. Leia, the girl with a smooth voice and a beautifully muscular back speaks. They call it hidden panic because so many hide indoors. Neighborhoods are a lot worse off than how they look. Personnel sit on tiny fold-out seats on both sides. Quadruped hauler bots stacked three high with retracted legs rest between the rows of people on either side. Tessa rubs the tips of her fingers together, feeling the VR dots below the skin. She can't find the one in her pointer finger but she feels the one in her middle finger when she drags her thumbnail across it. Opening her eyes, she makes eye contact with Marika who sits on the other side. They exchange a nod of solidarity. Marika was also in Climate Corps and stands out among these people who serve in the Army and Navy. Tessa and Marika are the only ones on the bus with long hair, straight blonde hair in Marika's case, and curly, unruly hair in Tessa's case. Anyone would look like a hippie sitting in this group. Most of these people served overseas. They probably ask Marika where to buy dope as much as they ask Tessa. The bus passes a burial site. Everyone gawks at the view through the windows. Quadruped carry bodies from buses to long trenches in rows. Hundreds of bodies in bright blue bags. Pele says, that's the old landfill. Leia asks, they're burying bodies in a landfill? Pele shrugs. I heard they were planning on building a golf course on top of it before the media attack. Leia says, if a relative wants to find one of the deceased, how do they? Pele says, there's an app for that. Leia scoffs. Ha. Pele says, no seriously. Identities are given exact coordinates. Everyone returns to their seats. The guy sitting next to Tessa extends his foldable, sets it on top of the robot in front of him, and plays the game's soldier craft. The turn tech that tracks his eyes and gives him a 3D experience, makes the game look blurry from her angle but she can tell what it is. His left hand jumps and dances. Tessa coughs. He flashes a glance at her. Frigate, I love these VR dots. It's like having an invisible controller in my hand whenever I need it. Tessa plays dumb. Is that what you're using? Yeah. I never liked immersion VR before, but I tried it last night with the dots, and I think I'm going to start gaming in VR. You have the headset? Yeah. The world is dying, and everyone's in love with the latest tech. Tessa almost smiles. On the other hand, the dots have boosted the country's morale which is nothing to shrug off. The VR dots will help people get over this national mess. Is that why they were rushed out early and free? Looking up and down the bus she sees eight others, making movements with their hands. She tries it with her watch. 
Wow, the dots make it so much easier. Her watch is on her right wrist, and she uses her left hand a few inches away. Her finger isn't blocking the screen while she shuffles through menus. This is fun but she still feels chewed up and spit out. It's like a never-ending hangover. The constant fear and revulsion eat away at her. On Boston streets, garbage piles up on the sidewalk. Even during rush hour, traffic is minimal. Giantess and other delivery service trucks are conspicuously absent. Graffiti covers boarded up windows, fences, and street-side walls, marking where normal livelihood has ceased. A wall of furniture piled high blocks off a street. A stream of thick smoke pours off the roof of a multi-story building. Ten kids walk in a pack through front yards, some carry sticks. One carries an axe. The occasional glittery car with mirror windows and gleaming rims drives slowly past apartment buildings. A long line forms outside an emergency center operating out of what was a gym. The bus stops and the back doors open. Tessa files off with the rest. She grabs a respirator and a field tablet from the chests in the back. They walk in a line to a corner building. A woman's face appears in a window. The tablet takes several minutes to come to life. This tablet would be so easy to crack. A basic map shows what buildings have been inspected and the states of the interiors. The troops divide into groups. The three people on Tessa's team walk toward her. Pele lightly socks her on the shoulder. Don't look so glum boss. Tessa gives him a smile without looking up from the tablet. A whiff of decay triggers a sickly feeling that'll get worse as the day drags on. Looks like we start in 8349. In front of an apartment building, Pele can't reach the landlord, so Tessa takes out her tools, kneels in front of the lock, and inserts two picks through the keyhole. Each team has a lock picker in training, and Tessa wanted this role, so she changed teams to get it. No one here has any clue she's already been a lock picker of sorts. She tries the handle and it turns. Leia nods and claps like a coach. You did it. You're getting faster. Are you sure you don't want to take 20 minutes doing that so we can sit out here in the sun? Tessa stands. Would Major Clark approve? Everyone's mood changes when the wall of stink hits them. No more powling around. They all pull respirators over their heads. Skinny Jaden stomps forward. His voice sounds muffled. The lights are on. Inside, Pele knocks on the first apartment door and a man answers moving at half speed and not understanding. Pele explains. We're not law enforcement. We're here on a health and safety call. Is anyone else in your apartment? Can we have a look around? The man's eyes swim as his head bobs around. He mumbles. Dried, chunky vomit covers his shirt. Pele gently pushes the man back and the team enters, moving from room to room. A girl lies on the floor, one leg propped up on the couch. Leia kneels beside her and taps her face. Are you okay? Hello? The girl stirs and looks up at Leia, eyes caked with crusties. The man leans against the wall tilting his head up at the ceiling. Tessa marks the apartment with her tablet. Two occupants. The next apartment isn't so easy. They find three dead, 
a man and a woman in one bed and a woman on the kitchen floor. Tessa opens an app to call the robots. A light on the tablet turns yellow and blinks. The quadrupeds come in looking like stretchers with walking legs. Pele grabs the handle on one to lead it into the bedroom where he and Leia lift the woman's body onto the robot. The robot tilts. When they place the body, the robot levels itself, guard rowls move up, and the robot exits. Tessa and Jaden lift the woman in the kitchen. Tessa avoids seeing the bullet holes, one on the forehead and one on the misshapen cheek. A small pistol slides off the woman and lands on the floor. Both Jaden and Tessa jump. When all three bodies are loaded, Leia hands out rags. Tessa wipes off her gloved hands and drops the rag into a plastic biohazard bag. Jaden and Leia follow the robots out. Pele says, you coming? Tessa taps away at the tablet. Go ahead. Let me enter this. Though the woman's driver's license rests on the bed, she marks the body as unidentified. When he leaves, she looks down. An old smartphone lies half under the bed. She moves it with her foot, reaches down, grabs it, and sticks it in her pocket. Older phones are easier to hack. In another apartment, they find a woman on the floor. Tessa holds her hand over the woman's neck and feels a pulse. The woman quietly breathes but otherwise doesn't respond. Leia comes back into the room. Call a robot. Tessa says. But she's still breathing. Pele kneels beside Tessa. Look, don't put anything down for this apartment. We can come back tomorrow for her. Tessa tries to calm her voice. Because she'll be dead tomorrow? Pele slowly nods. Tessa stands. He's right. There's nothing to be done here. Hospitals are full. All the triage centers popping up all over the city are full. 911 is broken. Her instincts scream at her to drop everything and help this woman. Is she the kind of person who'd leave someone to die? It's worse knowing she and her team will probably be the people who come tomorrow to get the body. Tessa feels as if she's getting sucked into a hole. It's like she has a lump in her throat but it's bigger and deeper than that. She has a giant lump in her chest that she can't get rid of. Maybe Pexen will help her handle working this job. Cars are leaving the city. Where do they go? She and her team notice the people walking, only one or two people at first. Soon groups or families walk down streets. Tessa and her team take a break on the street, removing their respirators, kicking the ground, and shaking off pent-up feelings. Pele points at two groups walking away. It's like that all over the country. There's no food or water so people leave their homes, but everywhere they go it's the same. Another group walks toward them. Tessa takes out brochures and holds one out to a man leading the group. This has the address of the nearest Pexen station. There you can find resources and learn where the nearest food and water is. The man takes the brochure from her. He looks surly and feverish. Dampness covers his face. The dealers sell food and water now. We bought a loaf of bread and two waters for $1,000. His eyes point at her like darts before he shrugs her off and trudges on. Leia says, don't get sidetracked again. 
You're just one person and you'll reach as many people sticking with us as you would wandering off. Tessa pants. Her blood boils. It's not Leia's fault. Tessa fights the urge to do something drastic. These soldiers tell each other that this is war but Tessa never signed up for war. She's missing whatever it is that they have that helps them cope. That night back at the Marriott, she lies in her cot with her VR headset on. Each former guest room has been partitioned to make three spaces. Her space is in the middle. Lying on her cot, she holds her hands in the air and her fingers dance. While others who wear headsets play games or socialize with human-controlled avatars, Tessa watches multiple windows and hammers out code. With the VR dots, the air keyboard works like a charm. Until recently she avoided virtual realities, and the air keyboard was like typing with drunken fingers. Now she forgets she's typing which is exactly how it should be. Using VR, she doesn't have to worry about someone seeing what's on her monitor. If someone peeks through the curtain at her they'll assume she's writing a long email to someone dear. She still has administrator status on the Climate Core network. Visiting it is like visiting a ghost town. No one else is logged on. Within the Climate Core network, she gains remote access to a server in a dockyard utility shed. She doesn't have to worry about getting anyone in trouble because no one's working on the dock at present. If the FBI try to track her activities down, they may find evidence on a computer on a box closed for business but who was getting into the shed to use the computer. There are no employees, no signs of forced entry, and no fingerprints. This server has her baby, the code for Medusa, the shadow net to beat all other shadow nets. Last year she included a microserver virus in an ad-blocking program and has waited until enough copies were installed so that Medusa would have a network to connect with. Medusa won't work until a high percentage of devices have their microserver software installed. It's been a year, so she starts Medusa to try it out. She tries the website Who Am I, sure enough, it can't tell where her browser is running, who's running it, or what kind of connection it's using. Medusa tells her when it must jump onto a trackable connection, from John Doe's Connect Link in Phoenix, through satellite to the Who Am I server in Phoenix, just a block away from John Doe. Very good. Is it too soon to release Medusa? With the ad-blocking software and Medusa software decentralized, there's no way for her to know for sure what percentage of devices out there have the needed microservers. If there's 20% saturation on the East Coast but only 1% saturation on the West Coast, the software will get downvoted on the West Coast and sync the project. She needs the project to catch on like wildfire or there won't be enough servers out there. She could always change the name and look of Medusa later and relaunch it. She goes to the app launching website. Should she charge for Medusa? Normally she'd offer it for free, but she's been feeling powerless and scared for the future. Others have control over where she can go and what she can do. Having money would give her leverage. She sets the price at free trial for a month and $5 worth of Bitcoin after that. It takes her half an hour to find that old bit wallet she hasn't used in years. It has 25 cents in it. She never was into cryptocurrency. She writes a description for Medusa, uploads the vector graphics, uploads the code for the 10 most popular operating systems, and stares at the screen. How many years has she worked on Medusa? She hits submit.
tick, 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 tick. It's only her personal baby, a project that has the potential to circumvent all those jerks who take away a little of the user's power and anonymity at every keystroke. It's up. Medusa, Shadow Net. Just waiting to get noticed, waiting to get tried and tested, starting a wildfire, or bust. She must have fallen asleep after that. A month later, her and her team run downstairs, climb over a fence and retreat down the road while gunshots reverberate from a second-story apartment. They climb inside the bus. Radio chatter directs other teams to stay clear of that building. After 10 minutes her teammates are ready to go back out there. Tessa takes another hour to get her nerve back. She covers her face and cowers. They offer her words of comfort but it's obvious they think she's pathetic. She should be used to this by now. She felt bullets fly past her. It all happened so fast. That shooter was a pro. There were stacks of cash on his coffee table. Tessa still shakes and pants. Pele pokes his head inside the bus. Tess, we gotta go. Your hour's up. She says, I'm coming. She won't look at the others as she marks the last building as weapons. Illegal activity. In the next house, they find a mother and two children, emaciated. The power is out and the house is cold. The mother lets them look through all the rooms. Was that you making the neighbors fire their guns? Leia nods. Yeah. The woman says, I went to school with him. He leaves me alone. Tessa pulls a lunch sandwich and breakfast sandwich from a shoulder bag under her jacket. She hands them to the woman. The woman's eyes grow wide. She snags them, scampers across the room, and hides them under a seat cushion. Tessa holds out a brochure. That address is five blocks down the street. They have food too. The woman doesn't look at her. I've been there. They got nothing. On the bus ride home everyone looks sweaty and disheveled even under all the pro gear. Leia sits next to Tessa. You know a bunch of us are going up on the roof. Want to come? Tessa is getting her foldable out. I'm not really into drinking. Leia bumps shoulder to shoulder. I knew that. Lots of people don't drink up there. It's just a change of scene. Tessa opens up the turn video app. The first video she sees is titled, Medusa Shadow Net, not just an anonymous browser. Tessa's heart rate shoots up so fast, her heart hurts. She lurches in her seat. Leia says, what's wrong? What's that? Tessa looks up and down the bus and covers her foldable. Uh. Uh. I don't know. She puts her foldable away. Leia smiles quizzically at her. Tessa says, I'll go. I'll go to the roof. Leia faces forward and leans back. Oh good. A lot of us girls will be there. It's actually kind of nice. There's a covered patio. Leia keeps talking but Tessa doesn't hear a word. Tessa never uses her personal foldable to do anything hacker-related. She searches for cake recipes and sad songs on turn video. Why'd the algorithm feed her a video about Medusa? Did she overlook something? Did they find her? 
Wait, she did search for top-rated apps on her foldable. But that can't be, she launched Medusa only a few weeks ago. It can't be top-rated. Hey Leia, I need to check my foldable real quick. Leia pauses in mid-conversation then says, oh sure. The video about her secret software is made by a turn video star and has 2 million views. It's one of many, many videos that just came out featuring her baby, Medusa. She gets too excited at once. Not wanting to do any searches that could connect her to Medusa, closes turn. She logs into the Climate Core network, initiates remote access to the server in the abandoned dock shed, and from there checks her Bitcoin account. $2.4 million. What? She logs off, shuts down Remote Connect, and logs out of Climate Core. Leia says, what is it? Tessa looks Leia square in the face. Ha ha. Leia laughs nervously, what is it? You look scared. Tessa says, Leia, I have some personal business I need to take care of tonight. Can I take a rain check on going to the roof? I want to. I promise I'm up for going on another night. Leia sighs and smiles, oh sure no problem. You obviously have some big news. Tessa eats dinner quickly and heads back to her bunk space. She's had time to think about it. No matter if she saw that video on her foldable or not, the video shows that her app is getting noticed. The $2.4 million could only have come from purchases of her app. What she needs to do is find another way to get paid. Bitcoin activity may be hard to track but her activity on Bitcoin may draw unwanted attention. Once someone's looking for her, it's just a matter of time before they pin her down. It isn't just authorities who may decide they need to find out who and where she is. Coke and meth together couldn't make her feel this amped. Elation and fear joined together to pump her full of excitement. She's never won anything before and now it's like she won the lottery. At the same time, she must act fast before this whole thing gets out of her hands. Skipping her nightly shower, she dons her VR headset. In a virtual environment, she stands in front of the login gate for the game Ruins of Firebend. Tangled vines wrap around aged columns. Letters chiseled in stone glow. She clicks on, new character. Stone doors swing forward and she's pulled into a candlelit room where an avatar slowly spins with parted legs and arms. Battle orchestration plays. Water flows over two fountains. A mouse scurries from one side of the room to the next. Her choices are glowing, letters cut into the stone walls, race, class, sex. Should she keep her character the way it looks now? No, that would draw a lot more attention. Her character should look like she spent time making it look different but actually came up with a look that isn't terribly unique. An hour later she's made herself a human huntsman. She uses one of her alias emails to finalize the sign-up and spawns into a clearing surrounded by trees with fat trunks and thick canopies of mint green leaves. Large birds swoop above. A fawn leaps into the clearing, looks startled at Tessa, and leaps away. Don't mind me little dear. I'm just here to launder some money. Ruins of Firebend is the most popular medieval VR. Its epic-sized world is procedurally generated but also added to from an older game, Ruins of Asmer. 
For decades players customized ruins of Asmer, the buildings, the clothing, the weapons, you name it. Characters classed as crafters could make and sell things. All that pooled creativity contributed to the creation of ruins of Firebend. There are a lot of historical locations where certain battles were fought. Schools where players can learn sword fighting were originally formed by players of Asmer back in the 20s. The creators of Firebend did need to eliminate a lot of what was made in Asmer. They had to take out all the wonky stuff that cluttered the old map and spoiled the ideal of a medieval, magical world. In one town in Asmer, they discovered gas and had gasoline-driven carriages. One small country had steam engines and mechanical flight. A pub featured tributes to great rap legends. No, Firebend is strictly medieval, magical. There are ogres, dwarves, and trolls but no microbes, dinosaurs, or Neanderthal. There are spells, potions, and summoning but no space flight, MRIs, or telegraphs. There's a class of characters who go around policing for non-mid-level magic changes. Name your character, Rambo, and you could get kicked out of the game. Don't try to fashion a football helmet or make chainmail with the slogan of your favorite political party on it. If you want to make something in the game you do have to go get the material or pay for it from someone who's gone out and gotten it. The money in Firebend acts like real-world money. Its value fluctuates a lot less than any real-world money. Tessa pulls the three gold coins that she gets as a new character out of her pocket and moves them about in her hand. Three characters step into the clearing, laughing, a human, a dwarf, and an elf. The elf says, give us that lunch money. Just because she hears them in English doesn't mean that's the player's native tongue. The game has real-time translation over dub so everyone in the game speaks your language. Most games and VR environments have this feature now. With chests puffed out, the three characters approach Tessa. She clicks on her tools bar to bring up their levels. One is level 5, one is 3, and one is 2. She's level 0. Players say on average it takes two years to achieve one level so these people have been at it for a while. She says, guys, you mean I just wasted two hours making a brand new character? Her in-game voice sounds like a cultish man's voice. They advance on her, the elf, level 5, in the front. A ten-foot-tall orc steps into the clearing and says, buzzsaw. Tessa turns to the orc, level 47. Hawkbit, is that you? The three would-be robbers halt. The orc says, you look so ordinary buzzsaw. Tessa says, well I'm a total noob, don't you know, and can you believe these courageous men of character want to rob me when I haven't been in the game for one minute? The three bump into each other as they turn around. The orc says, boo. He takes out a pink ball and throws it at level 5. A puff of dusty smoke explodes around the elf and he halts in a standing position. The other two run but Hawkbit takes out two snakes and throws them. The snakes land on the dwarf and human and wrap around them. They struggle but the snakes grow longer, wrapping around dozens of times and slowly strangling the player characters. Hawkbit points at the elf frozen still. I've been waiting for a chance to use that spell. It turns level 5 there into my personal zombified helper. The player can always log into that character but they can't ever control them again. Come on let's see what loot they have.
Tessa tries to seem patient. I'm not here to play the game. Hawkbit lumbers toward the elf who's taking out all his stuff and throwing it on the ground in front of him. Ah, you never know. You're like a brand new baby. I have a spell that'll raise you one level. Do you want it? Tessa runs to keep up. Thanks, but I'm going to make more than one character and I want them all to be expendable. Hawkbit scoops up the loot. You always play by your own rules. He holds up something shiny. A flute. It's probably magic. Tessa says, wow. Hawkbit says, want it? Tessa says, sure. Thanks. She smiles. The orc tilts its head. You have VR dots. I just saw you smile. Tessa opens her mouth then makes an O shape. O. She makes faces and moves her eyebrows up and down. They both laugh. The elf searches the dead dwarf and brings a bag of coins, an axe, a dagger, and a rabbit pelt to Hawkbit. Tessa says, I need a place to hide a lot of money. After nodding and thinking a moment, Hawkbit explains how to do it. Do you want me to come along and protect you? You're bait for noob hunters. Tessa says, no, thanks. If I'm going to be in this game at all, I think I should get kind of good at it. Hawkbit nods. Okay. Well, let me know. The ad blocker is going great. Tessa smiles. I know. We did good. Hawkbit says, have you heard of Medusa Shadownet? Our blocker software was number one but it got knocked down to number two by a new shadow net. Tessa can hear her voice cracking and hopes the autodub won't carry it into the game. I did see that. I guess it has pretty good coverage but I don't know. Have you heard of it having any cold spots? Hawkbit shakes his enormous green head. No, some talk about it improving coverage over the big three. Lying on her cot, Tessa's heart flutters. Tessa has one relocation spell that she gets with her new character. That, more than the three gold pieces is something robbers want from a noob. She wanders into the woods, hides under some bushes, and does a search for, semi-settled, low-combat, crafter's location. Nine transparent spheres appear, each holding a location. She looks over the stats on each. Glenbank only has a player population of three. She chooses Glenbank. When she touches the sphere the world around her dissolves. She falls, 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 and lands on her feet in a wooded grove. Birds scatter. The sun rides high in the sky. She thinks the day-slash-night cycle is six hours, but she isn't sure. Down the hill, a few of the roofs of the village of Glenbank poke through the trees. A nearby stream burbles, the wind rustles leaves, and far off a hammering echoes. An NPC is probably repairing a roof or something like that. She walks to the village which is surrounded by large hills. Quite a few NPCs move about on the cobblestone streets. She asks a woman leading a cow, where's the town hall? The voluptuous woman says, around the corner, there, and on your left. Tessa says, thank you. The woman curtsies. Fair day to you. Tessa opens a submenu and uses $1,000 in Bitcoin to buy game coin. On her hip, 
her coin bag grows fat and heavy. Yikes, she doesn't want any players seeing that. She hides it inside her jacket. Approaching the town hall, she avoids a horse-drawn carriage driven by a skin and bones farmer. She steps up onto the boardwalk and enters through a wide doorless doorway. A beefy, bald man sitting hunched over a desk looks up at her. A newcomer. Passing through or plan on staying a while? Tessa says, I'd like to buy a land deed. The man's grin brings out his wrinkles. That will cost you six gold. She pays him and takes the rolled parchment. Unfolding her map she says, do you have a sorcerer for hire in this village? The man scowls and ducks his head. Well sir, I won't keep knowledge from you. A certain wicked soul does live up Founders River. You visit there at your own risk, though. He points to a location on her water-stained map. Tessa says, much appreciated. At a blacksmith, she buys a shovel and dagger. As she walks up River Road, ascending a hill and leaving the town, the buildings grow fewer and less inviting. The remains of Beggar's Brewery strike her as a fitting place for a sorcerer. The roof is gone, and the sky shows through upper-story windows. An owl on a fence stares at her. An explosion throws her backward and there stands a woman wearing a heavy coat over a leather bikini. In a low voice, the woman says, who sent you here? You better not be on the city council. Tessa gets up. No, I want to buy spells. The woman barks a laugh and then sniffs the air. I smell much gold, much gold. What's to stop me from taking it from you outright? What do you say to that, wet ears? Tessa tries to remember exactly how Hawkbit told her to say it. I may return and buy from you again. The sorcerer blinks. Tessa tries again. Make me a happy customer today and I'll come again with more gold and in the long run you'll have much more gold. The sorcerer stands straight revealing her belly button. Well, you sound like you're prepared to barter, and nothing cooks my stew like a good barter. Tessa buys a hitty hole spell and a locked chest spell. The sorcerer proves to be completely inflexible with the price for someone who likes to barter. In her head, Tessa converts gold coin to dollar. The locked chest spell costs around $5 and the hitty hole spell costs $400, ouch. Someone's making money off this game. When Tessa leaves, she keeps an eye out. Hawkbit said sorcerer's familiars sometimes follow. Sure enough, the owl flies circles behind her. She crosses through the town to ditch the bird and visits a carpentry shop where she buys a pull cart and the largest chest they have. Towing the chest in the cart drains her stamina. Where the river flows through the town, only fish houses line the steep bank on the other side. She walks over a bridge to the other side where overgrown woods block most of the daylight. A muddy trail snakes behind all the fishing huts. The mud on the trail would be a problem, she might leave tracks ahead, the road enters a tunnel. She steps inside the tunnel's near total darkness and counts her steps, one, two, three, four, five, on eight she takes out the hitty hole spell. Like a giant seed in her hand, it glows but casts no light. She smashes it where the wall touches the cobblestone. A bright light flashes and her character menu chimes. A blue geometric shape spins above the ground showing her where her hitty hole is. She clicks it and selects, take, 
then she taps on the chest. A puckering hole in the ground sucks her chest out of the cart. She selects enter, is sucked into the hole, and lands in a tiny cave. The chest rests in front of her. Taking a deep breath, she opens the player menu and buys gold coin with the remaining $2.4 million in her Bitcoin account. The cave grows larger and larger as bags of gold coins materialize. She opens the chest and starts filling it. The bags of coins would have taken up four parking spaces, but they all fit in the chest. Well, magic does exist here. Smashing the locked chest spell on the chest ensures that only she can open or move it. Back in the village, she locates the bank. The stone building has elaborate ironwork on the windows and the inside is small. Through iron bars bolted into a small window, she can see a man sitting at a desk. He looks Jewish. This game has some issues. She's only here to launder money. Seriously, the makers of this game probably don't have enough women in their lives. It's a tale as old as the internet itself. She says, hello. The banker rises. Can I help you, sir? Tessa says, I have a relative who wants to fund my adventures. Can I open an account? The banker opens a book. Certainly. Are you ready to write this down? Tessa gets ready to take a screenshot. Sure. He says, B5TT9ZUV98 at RR3T83. The same sequence appears in front of her with an option to copy. Would you like me to email your benefactor? She says, no, thank you. She copies the code and signs out of the game. On the app launcher site for Medusa, she changes the pay settings so anyone who wants to buy the app can send money to her bank in the ruins of Firebend. She takes her headset off and sits up in bed, in the dark. Her watch says, 2.54. Holy crap she's going to be tired tomorrow. Her head is all sweaty. The panic gone, it now begins to sink in that she's a millionaire. Is that true? She won the fucking lottery. Her coding is making her money. Her concepts of what can be, what she could do, transmute inside her. She doesn't have to work. Well, it'd be breaking the law for her to go AWOL. Shit. She can't just quit. She hates this assignment. Some higher up knows she has the expertise to work in tech but they stuck her in dead body cleanup because they don't like climate core hippies. Of course, she could serve the country better by programming robots or anything tech related. Could she just run? No. These days every fart is counted. AIs detect who snorts coke, who steals company pens, and who takes an unexplained trip across the country. Just make one of your stats jump and FBI's AIs will be watching you. She's not paranoid. This is a real thing. That reminds her, she needs to ditch that Bitcoin account, forget its number and password, and never use it again. How much more time does she have in the service? Over two years, N.O. The smell of dead bodies for another two years. She's not like people who knew they were signing up for harsh environments. She signed up for the open water, an easy tech gig, and downtime to write her code. Making fists, she bangs them on the top of her head. Suddenly she looks up into the darkness. 
should she ditch her birth identity? If anyone can, she can. But what would that look like when she wants to call her foster parents? What would that look like when she wants to visit her ex-girlfriend? She could never make her family think she'd died, not even for a minute. If she did, she could never forgive herself. Thank you for listening. My landing page is solomeshan.com. There you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes a timeline and illustrations.